Again, take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, chapter 4, if you would. In a few minutes, I'm going to direct your attention to verse 7 in particular, but I'd like you to just open God's Word and have it open to uh, Ephesians, chapter 4. Uh, while you're turning there, let me mention a couple of things. I'm, I should have uh, brought your attention to this earlier. Last week we prayed for Art Connor, who was in the hospital. He had a heart attack on Saturday of last week, or Friday of last week. He went home from the hospital Monday afternoon and went back in Tuesday morning. He was home for less than 24 hours. He had a very unusual uh, nosebleed, probably uh, a result of the Coumadin, the large amount of blood thinner that he's been on. Uh, they couldn't stop it, and um, he was in the hospital for a couple of days, I think until Thursday. Then he went home on Thursday, and he's home recovering um, from that. Also, we prayed last week for Timothy Kranz, Jack Kranz's son, who had open-heart surgery on Thursday. I did not receive an update on him, uh, but I will endeavor to do so. Um, and then I also wanted to let you know, uh, we received a letter yesterday from Mark and Stacy Niles, and they asked us to pray for them uh, in the region in which they live. Uh, it is not highly policed. And uh, yesterday, Friday of this week, uh, they found a man in their courtyard uh, who was trying to sexually assault the little girl of one of their bodyguards. Um, so uh, if we could pray for them, Mark is actually scheduled to leave to go to a conference in South Africa, and they asked if we would pray this week in particular for Stacy and for Isaac and Maria for God's protection for them uh, in that work. We um, praise God for the Niles and the work that they are doing, and our hope is that God would use them to bring that entire tribe, that entire people group to himself, uh, and we'll pray for God's oversight of them. Uh, this week. Uh, today, our time in God's Word is going to be a bit unusual. It's going to be unusual for a couple of different reasons. First, uh, today, uh, today's passage is before us raises some interesting theological issues, and we're going to wade into them together. But the second reason that our time in God's Word is a little bit unusual is because I want to begin by showing you a picture. Let's see if it's going to come. There it is, right there. Um, this is a scene uh, undertaken, uh, uh, a scene of preparations that were undertaken by a paramilitary police unit in China uh, in order to participate in the festivities celebrating the 60th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. Uh, that celebration took place in uh, 2009. And that event and then the, the hosting of the Beijing Olympics in 2010 provided the world an opportunity to see that when the Chinese mark a public festival, they do it with entire devotion. Do you remember seeing some of the coverage uh, of the Olympics? Or maybe you saw some of the uh, footage from the 60th anniversary uh, celebration. Uh, it, it was amazing. Do, do you remember the colors, the bright colors uh, in the festivities, the reds and blues and yellows? Uh, maybe... Some of you remember the displays. I didn't know that you could get a float to do some of the things that I saw in this uh, parade that the Chinese hosted. Or the choreography. They would have thousands of people marching in step or dancing uh, together in unison. It was, it was amazing to see. And this picture actually shows us one of the ways in which they were to achieve that symmetry. Uh, I wonder if you can see what the officer is doing there to that young man's collar. This is a, a police officer, and, and the, uh, the uh, 
uh, officer is uh, with his hands putting needles through the man's collar with a point sticking up into his neck so that if while he is marching, he ever looks down or to the left or to the right, he will receive an immediate and painful reminder of how his head must be held erect. If he moves incorrectly, he will get the point. Hmm. Uh, We have before us a passage of scripture that reminds us of the importance of the efforts that we extend in maintaining the unity of the body. We've been talking about this from Ephesians 4. In light of the greatness of the God who called us to himself, our calling is to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And we exhibit humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance with one another. If we are not careful, though, we can easily move from cherishing unity to imposing uniformity. For some people, this call in Ephesians chapter 4 to participate in and to love the local church feels like putting needles in their collar. This this call to align yourself with fellow believers feels restricting and stifling and punishing It may feel that way to you, particularly if you are someone perhaps uh, with a particular creativity or uh, great skills in the arts or if you're a particular spontaneous person. Maybe someone with particular skills like that might feel more straitjacketed than set free by aligning yourself with the congregation. When I was in high school, I'm not sure if it still is or not. Maybe it is. Some of you remember the days when it was a great privilege to get your high school letterman jacket. Uh, There are athletes. There was not much to do in Perry except play sports. So our athletes would, with great pride, they would earn their varsity letters and they would buy themselves their jackets, these blue woolen jackets that had like a yellow gold uh, hood type thing on it. And if you had one of those, it was very impressive. You had your letterman jacket and you could put pins and all sorts of stuff on it to indicate your athletic prowess. Uh, it was a day of great pride. When you got your jacket, you could wear your new jacket to school. Maybe for some of you, the Paul's call to unity in the church does not feel like getting on, getting to wear a new jacket that is a symbol of your status as a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe it feels more like a straight jacket, this call to join and to align yourself and to devote yourself to a local body of believers. Now, <laughs> This feeling, let's be honest here, this feeling of being restricted or stifled could be because you just don't want somebody telling you what to do and you like autonomy and you want to be independent and you don't have to be submissive to somebody else. That, that, that could be it. But this feeling of being restricted or stifled could also come because the church moves from unity to uniformity. And lest you think that what Paul is calling us to when he commands us to come together is is that he wants us to be the same. I want you to see what the apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter four, verses seven through ten. So I'm going to direct your Bible there, direct you in your Bibles to that passage. I'm going to turn the lights on and we'll raise the screen and we'll look into God's word and see what it says. Ephesians chapter four. I'm going to start reading in verse seven. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 16. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended, 
on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 7 through 10. Let me just briefly walk through this text. In verse 7, Paul makes a statement about our diversity. To each one of us, grace has been given. Uh, This statement about our diversity is bracketed by two statements about our unity. One body, one Lord, one faith in verses 4 through 6. And then in verses 11 through 16, he again talks about our growing up together into him who is the head, our Lord Christ. But in the middle, he talks about our diversity. And then in verses 8 through 10, having spoken to us about our diversity of giftedness, he talks to us about Christ's authority to give us gifts. Christ has apportioned them, and then verses 8 through 10, he tells us Christ has the authority and the rule to do that. (laughs) And in verses 9 through 10, do, do you have it in parenthesis like my Bible does? Paul can't talk about the ascended, risen Christ without him also thinking about his great work of redemption. And, and Paul actually speaks about the, the work of Christ in terms of ascending and descending. And that's the tricky theological part that we're going to wander into a little bit today. Uh, if you want to get, again, verses 8 through 10 is the, the controversial, the theological, the difficult part of this passage. But if you want to get what Paul says in verse 7, and if you want to do what Paul says in verse 7, in fulfillment of his commands to pursue the unity of the body, you've got to get what he says in verses 8, 9, and 10. And here's how I want to proceed this morning. If you, if you want to, you can take notes on that cream sheet of paper. I think that's in the bulletin uh, today. Um, what I want to do is I want to raise here two basic principles that emerge from the text. And we're going to use them to further unfold how our differences under Christ uh, uh, contribute to our unity together. That's the plan for today. Here's principle number one. Principle number one, you have gifts that are essential for the unity of the church. You have gifts that are essential for the unity of the church. That's the message of verse 7. To each one of us, as individuals, to each one of us, grace is given. Now, by this context, I think Paul here is talking about uh, spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a divine enablement for ministry. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you. And as a part of his presence, you receive grace that enables you, that gifts you to serve in the body of Christ. 
And the New Testament speaks about spiritual gifts in four places. They're easy to remember by their numbers. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12. Four places in the Bible that it talks about spiritual gifts. And those passages mention a variety of gifts. Uh, teaching, serving, hospitality, leadership, mercy, evangelism, tongues, prophecy, uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the gifts mentioned in verses, uh, verse 11 where he talks about apostleship and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift and your exercise of them is one of the ways that God intends to unite us together as a local assembly of believers. In fact, the use of your gift is necessary for our maturity. Our congregation is immature to the extent that we have people who are a part of the body who are not using gifts to serve. And and on the basis of verse 7, you should ask yourself, in what ways has God equipped me to serve in the congregation? What, What grace is evident in my life that God wants to pour through me to serve other people? You you should ask yourself that question. Uh, Romans 12 says, do it soberly, but think... What gifts has God given you to enable you to serve the congregation well? Now notice in verse 7 here, Paul uh, uses this phrase that's supposed to temper how we think about these gifts. It says, To each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Or, um, that is, uh, Christ has given us gifts according to his own measure. And this phrase has here to guard us in two deadly attitudes that arise when it comes to thinking about our gifts. Comparison and competition. Comparison and competition. It doesn't matter at what level uh, you are speaking in terms of giftedness. One of the great temptations we talk about or we face when we talk about our different gifts is the temptation to compare ourselves with others or if not to compare ourselves with others, to compete with one another, to see who can do better. This temptation happens at any level. Have you ever heard a fifth grade band play? Oh. Um, at my elementary school, we started taking piano, uh, instrumental lessons in September, and by spring, by January, we were already together playing in a band. Um, If you're here this morning and you're in fifth grade and you're learning to play an instrument, I commend you for your effort. That's wonderful. You should keep practicing, keep pursuing the instrument. It's great. And uh, please consider what I'm about to say in, in support, in light of my full support for your instrumental learning. Listening to a fifth grade band is torture. Uh, we could make every prisoner at Guantanamo Bay confess to all his crimes and all we need to do is bring in a fifth grade band for our concerts. Uh, You would think at that level, when everyone is just terrible, you would think at that level that there would be nobody thinking to themselves, I'm really good at this. Nobody's really good at this at that level. But you know, in fifth grade, there are students that are thinking to themselves, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm sure musicians outgrow that, right? 
Not according to a story that I read from the Chicago Tribune from a few years ago. Members of the violin section of the Beethoven Orchestra of Bonn, Germany, sued for pay raises because the violinists felt that they deserved more money because they played more notes than the people in the trumpet and the flute section. I know there's a certain logic to their argument, I, I suppose I see. But isn't it strange to be counting notes in an orchestra? doesn't matter at what level you are, uh, there's this competition and this comparison. It doesn't take long for Paul to say, each one, each one, for human beings to begin thinking to themselves, why can't I lead? Why can't I teach? Why can't I serve? Why can't I host? Why can't I counsel like they can? I tell you, the same thing happens uh, with pastors. Pastors are terrible at this. Whenever I hear someone else speak, my, my, the two thoughts that run through my mind, one of two thoughts are, I wish I could have said that like he did, I'll never be able to, or I could have said that better than him. Those two things run through my mind. Comparison and competition. I, w- I was not the pastor when this, this happened, uh, but I understand that, that many, many, many years ago, uh, the deacons would gather together for their meetings. We called them deacons back then, our elders. Uh, snacks at deacons meetings used to be a big deal. We have snacks. We meet for a long time on Thursday nights uh, when we meet, and usually somebody brings a bag of potato chips and some wonderful brownies or something. They're, they're fine. But what I understand is that years ago, the snacks it used to be a full-on full-course, scrumptious, entertaining evening. Um, Pies that were timed to come out of the oven precisely at the moment when they were to be served. And apparently, uh, snack time became somewhat of a competition. Who, Who could do it best? These deacons' wives. These otherwise godly women, uh, the wives of our church leaders... We're subtly trying to outdo one another with their skills. Isn't that silly? And isn't that something that you do all the time? Compare and compete. Paul contributes, or Paul confronts this tendency by telling us uh, that our giftedness is not a matter of personal decision. It's Christ's decision. It's not a matter of your genetics or your heritage or the fact that somebody else had better opportunities than you. The decision is Christ. Gifts are given according to his measure and we defer to his wisdom always. There are in the world about 650 Stradivarius violins. Stradivarius was a violin maker. His golden period of the creation of his violins was from 1700 to 1720. And if one of these violins ever comes on sale, they go for millions of dollars. I think the last one, if I read correctly or remember correctly, sold for six and a half million dollars. Um, one of the mysteries of Stradivarius violins is what Stradivarius did to make them sound like they do. Why do his violins sound better than anybody else's? It wasn't because of his computer technology. We know that for sure. Um, we can measure his violins down to the, the micro inch. We, we can, we can uh, uh, use the same wood. The mystery that many people uh, uh, contemplate when they think about Stradivarius violins is the resin that he used to seal the wood. 
Many people think that it's that resin that gives the Stradivarius violin its, its particular sweetness. What ingredients did he use to make them? What, what chemicals or what, what natural things did he find in? And how precisely did he prepare this resin? How did he cook it? And at what temperature? How did he do this? It's a mystery. Nobody knows. One of the experts in the world of Stradivarius violins says, Stradivarius knew something that we don't. He had an insight that we haven't been able to figure out. I doubt very much that you are always satisfied with the gifts that Christ has given you. We all fight this temptation to compare and to compete, but when you realize, when you do that, when you enter into this competition and this comparison, you are questioning the wisdom of our Lord Christ. He knows something that you don't. He has a mastery that you don't. He distributes his gracious gifts in mysterious ways, and and ours is not to challenge or to doubt his craftsmanship. The issue is not the quantity or the type of gifts that we have received, but the faithfulness with which we use them. If God has made you a fifth grade trumpeter, practice and practice and play your fifth grade trumpet as best you possibly can. And if God has made you the first chair of the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra, you need to practice too. And both of you, through your faithfulness, will present a sweet sound in Christ's ear. You have gifts that are essential for the unity of the church. That's what Paul says in verse 7. That's principle number one. Now on to principle number two. Your gifts are an expression of the majesty of Christ. Your gifts are an expression of the majesty of Christ. His glory is revealed in the giftedness of the congregation. Your gifts show, first of all, the majesty of his power, the majesty of his power. In verse 8, in order to affirm or in order to validate the fact that Christ has authority to give gifts, Paul quotes from Psalm 68. All right, look what the text says. It says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. This is a quotation from Psalm 68. And I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, keep your finger in Ephesians 4 and flip with me back over to Psalm 68. We're going to do a little bit of uh, digging here into this psalm together this morning. Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a beautiful psalm. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. And the message of Psalm 68 is that God is a mighty warrior who uses his power to defeat his enemies and to help his people. It's not hard to see in the text. I'm going to read a few verses that will show that to you. God is a mighty warrior who uses his strength to defeat his enemies and to help his people. Um, God is great in power. If you're against him, you should be afraid. And if you're with him, you should rejoice. Look at Psalm 68. We're going to start reading in verse 1. This is what the scripture says. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you, God, blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh, his name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows. 
That's what God is in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled into it. And from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. God is a mighty warrior. And those who stand against him should be afraid. And those who stand with him should rejoice. That's the theme of Psalm 68. And in verse 8, he makes reference to the fact that God is the God of Sinai. That is, he met his people on top of Mount Sinai. He gave them the Ten Commandments through Moses. He gave them the law. And then he went with them. He traveled with them through their wanderings in the wilderness. And he went with them into the promised land. And he went with them all the way until he went up onto Jerusalem into the temple where he was enthroned there. And that is in verse 18. Uh, Let's actually start reading in verse 17. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai to his sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem. And look what it says. When you ascended on high, when you went up the hill to the temple, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. And it's to verse 18 that Paul is specifically referring in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. And this should cause you a couple questions. You should puzzle about this a little bit. One of them is, if you look at verse 8 of Ephesians 4, it says, When he ascended on high, now he changes the person from you to he. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave, gave, it says, gave gifts to men. Paul playing fast and loose with the text here. He's changed verse 18 from received to gave. Now, why is that, I wonder? I don't think Paul is playing fast and loose with the text. Uh, One of two things is going on here. Either Paul here is quoting from another translation of the Old Testament, and there is one. It's called the Syriac Peshitta translation of the Old Testament, and it says gave, so maybe Paul's quoting from that. That That would be all right. I think actually what's happening here is that Paul is loosely paraphrasing Psalm 68 in keeping with the terms of what Psalm 68 is about. Psalm 68 is about the fact that God, who is the warrior God, crushes his enemies and rewards his followers. And and he refers to it by saying, when you ascended on high, you gave gifts. When God ascends, as God is exalted, he blesses his people. That's just in keeping with his nature, and it's in keeping with the message of Psalm 68. I think, I don't think that's difficult, the switch from gave to received. What I think is more stunning here is that Paul applies this chapter, Psalm 68, very clearly, a passage about the God of the Old Testament. He applies it to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Some people claim that the apostles did not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. That is obviously not true. Paul here says that Jesus is just like the warrior God in Psalm 68. 
Like God, Jesus himself is a triumphant warrior who has ascended not to the temple in Jerusalem, but who has ascended to heaven and he has captives of his own. The Lord Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has defeated Satan, sin and death and is an expression of his exaltation at the right hand of God the Father where he now sits. He gives gifts to those who are his own. Spiritual gifts are not mentioned in the Bible just to make you feel useful or to make you feel special or to help you understand how you matter. They are a manifestation of the power and authority of the Lord Jesus who has defeated sin and death and now is exalted at his Father's right hand. (laughs) This is why you must consider your role in the maturity of the body of Christ because your participation in it is an expression of the magnificence of Jesus' power. You can serve in the church because Jesus is the ascendant Lord. And just in case you doubt that, verse 10 tells us he's the one who ascended, in Ephesians 4, verse 10 tells us, he's the one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. You serve at his command. You serve at his enablement, which certainly affects how you change diapers in the nursery, doesn't it? should make you think about how you prepare your Sunday school lesson. Here I am, uh, whenever you prepare, early Sunday morning, Saturday sometime, here I am exercising the gift, preparing to exercise the gift of teaching that God has given me. And I have this gift because the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended in heaven as, as the great conqueror of sin and death. You'd be washing dishes in the kitchen as part of the fellowship committee, and you say, hand me the towel Jesus ascended so that I can dry this pan. This is marvelous, magnificent power. And God expects you to serve in the church with the gifts he has given you as a consequence of his great ascension into heaven. It's a manifestation of the power of uh, the majesty of Christ's power, but it is also the manifestation of the majesty of his grace. Using these spiritual gifts are the manifestation of his grace. Now remember, Paul cannot think about the Lord Jesus as triumphant in his power without also thinking about his condescending grace. And so he, in verse 9, gives us the most difficult passage, a phrase, maybe in this whole chapter. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Now what does he mean here? I think that Paul is writing here about Christ's incarnation. The second person of the Trinity left his home in heaven and came to earth. And he came to a lowly existence on earth. He was born in a stable. He grew up in a carpenter's home without much money. He didn't have a pillow to rest his head. He didn't have a roof to put over his head. He walked everywhere he went in his life except two, a few rides in a borrowed boat and one ride on a borrowed donkey. When he died, he, uh, all he owned were the clothes on his back. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb, which I suppose is okay because he didn't use it for very long. I think that's what descent is referring to. The descent of Christ, he's talking about his, him coming to earth as a human being in his incarnation. But that is not what I was originally taught about this passage nor is it the view that many in the church have held. 
Uh, maybe you're among them. Here's a traditional view of this passage. A traditional view of this passage is that the descent of Christ refers um, to the time between Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection when Jesus descended into Hades or hell. When Jesus died, his body went into the tomb, and so this theory goes, where did his spirit, his soul go? The theory is that it went into Hades. Now, accompanying this idea is the belief that Hades itself, the place of death, is divided into two uh, spaces. There is the place for the unrighteous dead to be, uh, those in the Old Testament who died apart from God, uh, their suffering torment. And then there's another place here for the righteous people who died in the Old Testament there, uh, though they were rightly related to God, and they're in a kind of a waiting room. And sometimes, based on Luke 16, this waiting room is called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Have you heard this before? Am I... Okay, uh, and the belief is that Jesus, between his resurrection and his crucifixion, went to this waiting room place, this place of paradise, where he hung out for three days with the righteous people of the Old Testament. Hey, Abraham, what's up? That's what he was doing. No, uh, that's where he was. What was he doing when he was there? There's a verse that seems to suggest to some people what he was doing, and it's in 1 Peter 3. Listen to what it says. Verse Peter 3:18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached the spirits in prison. So the theory goes that Jesus, after he died, when his body and soul were separated, he went to this paradise, this Abraham's bosom, And he was proclaiming there his victory. He said to Abraham, Abraham, you were right. I have come. I have died. I paid the penalty for your sins. And now you can be completely forgiven and to go into God's presence. Abraham, Moses, David, he was announcing that to them. Ruth, he was telling them. And he was telling to people, the people in the bad part of of Hades, he was saying to them, I won, I won, I won. That's the thought. Now, There's lots of other puzzle pieces to the puzzle. Let me mention one more in this thinking. Do you remember after the resurrection, uh, uh, Jesus came out of the tomb and and Mary saw him and Mary was just stunned to see the Lord. And and there's this verse that says, don't touch me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to heaven. That verse. The thinking is, according to this, this theory that I'm talking about here, is that Jesus says, I haven't been to heaven yet, Mary, and, and, and don't touch me because you'll contaminate me before I get to heaven. Um, I don't think that's what that passage is talking about. And I'll tell you why in a minute. You, you've probably heard this, this theory before. Maybe you, you, you know somebody who uh, believes it. The Apostles' Creed, one version of the Apostles' Creed, we don't say this phrase when we quote the Apostles' Creed, but in the Apostles' Creed it says, Christ descended into hell. One of my most useful commentaries on the book of Ephesians that I own believes that this is what this passage in Ephesians 4 is speaking about. As as historical as that view is, though, I don't hold to it. I don't think this is what Paul is writing about. I think it's unnecessary to imagine that Christ descended into hell or went into Hades and could not or did not go into his Father's presence until the resurrection. And the reason I believe that is... Because on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. All of his work of redemption, 
all the suffering that he would need to entail, every good thing that he did, that he needed to do to redeem us was accomplished on the cross. Uh, Another reason why I don't think that this view is true is because I don't think it's the best way to understand these passages. Ephesians 4 doesn't make any reference to Hades or hell at all. There's nowhere else in the Bible that Hades or hell are called the lower regions of the earth. I think in 1 Peter 3, Peter is making reference to the fact that Jesus, through the Old Testament prophets, spoke to the men and women in the Old Testament who didn't believe in him. That is, the spirit of Jesus was in Noah as Noah was proclaiming the good news of repentance and and salvation to all who will believe. I don't think that Mary passage, the passage of the resurrection, explains this. See, Jesus did not say to Mary, don't touch me. Better translation is that Mary said, Jesus said to Mary, stop clinging to me. (laughs) Uh, Jesus is coming out of the tomb. Mary is so excited. She grabs onto him and she holds on for dear life. And Jesus says, Mary, Mary, it's okay. I haven't yet ascended permanently to the Father. You'll see me again. You don't need to hang on to me like I'll never be around again. Uh, I think the word descend here, Paul is talking about uh, Christ's incarnation. The crucial truth of this passage, though, is that Christ has come down. And Paul is reminding us in these terms, ascend, descend, or descend first, then ascend. Uh, He is reminding us of a pattern that we all must follow as those who call on the Lord Jesus. Like him, we go down to serve. Christians have power. Christians have been given grace by God. He gave us gifts not to control and not to dominate and not to manipulate others but to lift them up. This is what Jesus has done. This is how Jesus used his power. It's how Jesus expects us to use the gifts that he has given us. This week I read a recommendation for a book that's been out for a number of years by Thomas Sowell about how how different political philosophies work. If you uh, spend any of your time engaged in political philosophies... And if you go, if you wade into the research that's been done about racial uh, politics or gender politics, a theme that you will find out in all of that philosophical thinking is the idea of power. What is power? How do you get power? What do you use power for? For us as followers of Christ, there's no question what power we have we use to serve uh, as Jesus did. Jesus did what only Jesus could do. He became the Savior. No one else could rescue us from sin. No one else could intercede like him between us and God. No one else could pay the penalty for sin that we owed. No one else has come from such heights to such depths and has risen again uh, to be the ascendant Lord. No one else can do that but Jesus. But we, his followers, recognize that with the power he has given us, the grace he's given us, the gifts, we go down to serve too. If you want to follow him, this is how you think about your own power, your own gifts. Last week we affirmed new elders. The congregation did not give the elders the authority that they have so that they could lord their authority over the congregation. The church gave them the authority they have to serve the church. 
We're soon going to come to Ephesians chapter 5 and we're going to talk about a husband's authority in his home. And God did not give a husband authority in his home so he would never have to get his own slippers or clean his own dishes. God gave a husband authority in his home so that he might use that power to lift his wife and his children up. We're going to talk then in in, in Ephesians chapter 6 about the authority and the power that God gave to parents Parents do not have power to silence their children or ignore their children or dominate their children, but to bring them to maturity. Some of you enjoy a position of influence in your peer group. People come to you. They they look to you or in your small group. Do you use the power that you have to welcome people in or to marginalize people? Do you use it to rescue people and lift them up or make them feel small and excluded? This is what Christ has done. This is why Christ has gifted you. Jesus does not call us to action with needles into our flesh. He doesn't use pins to teach you how to stand erect in the church. He calls you with the power of His grace. And as you respond to His call, His people will flourish. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for our Lord Jesus Christ who is at your right hand interceding for us. We're thankful that he prays for us. Um, The Holy Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray and our advocate um, stands for us at your right hand. God, I come before you this morning and I pray that you would enable us to serve as a congregation using the gifts that you have given us, not so we feel special, not so we feel needed, but as an expression of the great majesty and power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Convict us, change us, challenge us where we compare and where we compete with one another. Help us who are husbands in this room to use our power and authority to lift up. Help us who are small group leaders and elders and parents to use that authority you have given us uh, for the exaltation of your son and for the the, uh, lifting up, uh, the restoring and the righteousness of those who are under our care. Uh, We fail in many ways in this regard. Seeing Jesus, we pray uh, today, uh, uh, direct us aright, renew us and strengthen us for the giftedness and for the positions that you have called us to fill. We give you thanks and praise for these things through Christ our Savior. And together we God's people say, Amen.